0: You're listening to the Redeeming Grace Church Podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org. We're in John chapter 5, verse 31. We're right in the middle. We're jumping right into the middle of a speech. A defense that Jesus is giving for himself. So um, we're jumping right in the middle of it here. Verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me. And I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things to you that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works of the Father has given me to accomplish the very works that I am doing bear witness about me, that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. But if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So there's a a Netflix documentary called Long Shot. I don't know if any of you have seen it. Uh, But it is the story of this guy who is accused of a, a murder. Someone is shot in front of their home. And he is accused, he's got some loose connections there, and someone um, had a, did a sketch artist, some witness to the sketch artist looked just like him and picked him out of the lineup. So as they're going into this and he's going to trial, um, it turns out that his alibi his alibi that he is giving is that he was actually at the LA Dodgers game with his daughter. And so his lawyer begins to research and looks at Dodger vision and all the different cameras that are going on and they just can't, they, they can't find anything that really verifies clearly that it's him sitting in those seats. So he is going to trial, he's facing the death penalty. It, it, there's an eyewitness that puts him there and, uh, and his alibi seems to be shaky at best. Until all of a sudden, an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm by Larry David was happening to be filming that day in the exact row that this man was sitting. And so as they researched this, they found out that he's actually in the footage. He actually bumps into Larry David the star of the show in the middle of the uh, in, in the middle of the episode, and so that ends up exonerating him because it turns out that that's a very credible that's a very credible witness. Like a it's like high definition; they can see exactly that it's him and his daughter, and they're exactly wearing what they said they were, sitting in the exact seats, and he was exonerated because in in a set, in, in in essence, anyone that watches that movie is a faithful witness that he did not commit that crime. And so what looked like no witnesses to verify his, um, uh, his, um, his testimony, it turned out that there are literally additional witnesses every day as they watch that show. There was limitless verification and witnesses to this man's innocence, to this man's claims. So what we have today is we have Jesus is facing charges of blasphemy. What he has done in earlier cha- in chapter five is he has gone to the pool of Bethesda right outside Jerusalem. And he healed a man on the Sabbath and then told that man to pick up his mat and walk. And after 38 years, this man had been lame at the pool. And now he's walking and the Jewish leaders confront him. They really don't care that he's been healed. They don't have a lot of care for the man. They just know that that breaks the Sabbath commandment to carry your mat. And so the man actually uh, is like, man, I don't really know who healed me. And he ends up running into Jesus a little bit later And the man doesn't have that much interest in Jesus. He just wants to get himself off the hook for breaking the the Sabbath. And so he goes and tattles on Jesus to the leaders and they confront him. And essentially Jesus' defense is the Sabbath doesn't apply to me because I am one with the Father. The Father works on the Sabbath. He keeps the whole universe running and I keep working. So in a sense, he ups the ante. So he's not just a Sabbath breaker, but he's actually claiming to be God. He's claiming to have God's prerogatives, God's privileges, and God's authority actually even over the law, which is a strong statement. If it's false, he's guilty of blasphemy and worthy of death. If it's true, then he should be bowed down and worshipped immediately. And so he is on trial. In fact, fact, the whole Gospel of John is essentially a, a trial case where... John is saying that here is the charge. Jesus is the Son of God, and I'm going to give you evidence based on his work and his words. I'm going to give testimony because I want you to believe that he is the Son of God, and by believing, you may have life in his name. So essentially, all throughout 2020, we're going to have the same message over and over from different texts. Jesus is the Son of God, and we should believe in him and have eternal life. That's the point of John. He's got one point all throughout the gospel, and we're going to make that point 52 times this year. But we need it. We need it. And so here's our outline for the message here is that Jesus has five credible witnesses that he's going to bring forth. He's made his defense. He's saying, you don't really have the authority to judge me. I have the authority to judge you because I'm one with the Father. And because I'm one with the Father, I have the prerogative to give both physical resurrection life and execute judgment and give resurrection life and give judgment. That's what he has just said prior to our text today. And he's going to turn now to these five credible witnesses. So Jesus is doubling down, going, oh, I'm not committing blasphemy. I'm God. (laughs) So he's not trying to sidestep the charges. He's up in the ante. No, let me be very clear. I am God is what he's saying. And it's not you that judges me. It's going to be me ultimately that judges you. So it's a strong statement. Jesus is in the middle of a very strong defense of his deity. And so here's our outline. Five credible witnesses. Then we'll look at the problem is willful unbelief. That's the problem. And then Jesus in all of scripture is where we will end our time together. So let's look at the beginning of this again. The context is Jesus healing this man and then being accused not just of being a Sabbath breaker, but claiming to be equal with God. And the charge is that he is guilty of blasphemy Cap, a capital offense and he's giving his defense to say no here's five credible witnesses to my deity verse 31 if I alone bear witness about myself my testimony is not true so he's, he's, he's referring to Deuteronomy 19 and numbers 35 which say that in a court case someone's own testimony is not sufficient for proof we know that right so if I, uh, if I come to my kids and they've got they've got uh, uh Chocolate chip on their face, and I say, "Did you eat one of the chocolate chips cookies?" And they go, "No." Right? Their own testimony, in and of themselves, there has to be some verification. Uh, the other day, I was I was very vehemently accused of eating some of my kids' candy, <laughs> and they found it, and it has their name on it, and uh, the wrappers were right there where I usually sit, and so when I got home, that evidence was right in front of me. Right? If I had denied it. Um, one's own testimony is insufficient Is the point Jesus is following the rules of going. If I'm the only one that witnesses to my deity You should not believe me But he's saying I have additional witnesses I have credible witnesses The claim that Jesus is making The, 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 the claim that Jesus is the only one Testifying to his deity Is false And he has witnesses to back him up He is God and he's got credible witnesses That he's going to call In this text here we have the word witness six times So it's clear he's calling witnesses six times. And we have the word testimony, which is just, is is a similar, it's kind of the verb form of witness, four times. And we have the word believe six times and the word receive five times. So it's kind of like as a jury, you have to decide whether this is credible testimony, whether these witnesses are giving credible testimony. And if they are, you should believe them and you should receive me. That's what's at stake here. Okay. Now, here's the deal is that when you call witnesses, they kind of rise or fall with the case. So if, just think about this for a moment, Jesus is saying these witnesses give clear testimony. And so if you declare me to be guilty of blasphemy, then you are declaring each of these witnesses to be liars. Because they are saying very clearly that I am divine. They speak of me. And so he's, he's letting them know the significance of their decision. If they claim that he is blasphemous, then these five witnesses fall with him and are not to be trusted. So witness number one is John the Baptist, verses 32 through 35. There is another who bears witness about me. I'm not the only one. Let me call witness number one to the stand. There's another one who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, meaning John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, Meaning that his testimony is not greater than mine, but it verifies mine. But I say these things that you might be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So if you turn to John chapter 1, verses 29 through 34, we actually have recorded John's testimony about Jesus. Here is what John says in chapter 1, John the Baptist Here's his testimony. We have it recorded. This is what Jesus is referring to with witness number one. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him. And here's what he said. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me. So in physical, earthly age, I guess, he was born after me. He's younger than me. But he ranks before me because he was before me. He is eternal. So he existed before me. He's claiming Jesus to be divine in the Lamb of God. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom the Spirit descends and remains... This is who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have soren- seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. John the Baptist is called to the witness stand. says he's the Lamb of God. He's the Eternal One. He is the Son of God. And he's the one that I came to point out as the Messiah, the res- rescuer of Israel. And indeed of the whole world. So John the Baptist is a big deal. Even Jewish historian who's not a Christian, Josephus, indicates that John's ministry <sighs> generated significant messianic expectation. John the Baptist was a big deal. He created a lot of waves because he fit the bill as the one who would announce the coming of the Messiah. And actually right here it says that that these people that are confronting Jesus now said you actually received him. At one point you actually were respectful of his, you sent messengers, you had the messianic expectation too. You just didn't like that he pointed to me. So you you believed this witness for a while, but now that you're being confronted by me, you are changing your tune. So John the Baptist is a big deal. Every single one of the four Gospels starts with John the Baptist. Isn't that interesting? He is a massively significant forerunner of Jesus and a massive indication that Jesus is the Messiah. That's over and over in your scriptures. We've talked about this some, uh, but Jesus keeps bringing it up, so we'll keep bringing it up. Psalm 132, 16 and 17 has a prophecy about the one who would come before the Messiah. Now, Jesus says in John chapter or John 5, verse 35, he says this interesting thing about John the Baptist. He was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice in him for a while in his light. Listen to this prophecy a thousand years before. About the one who would come before the Messiah. In Psalm 132, 16 and 17. Her priests I will close with salvation. And her saints will shout for joy. Speaking of the messianic coming of the Savior. I will make a horn to sprout from David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. So there would be one who would be like a lamp. That would come before the Messiah came. And then Jesus says that was fulfilled in John. He says he was a burning and shining lamp. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Now a lamp, what you would do is you use a lamp because it's dark out, right? Is that right? You use a lamp because it's night out, but once the sun comes, you can you can you can turn off the lamp, right? So John the Baptist, his he was to be this shining light, so that when the sun, when Jesus came, when the Messiah came, you could snuff out the light, which is exactly what happened to John. John said, He must increase, I must decrease. My point was just to get the people to The real light. And then John was beheaded. His life was over. His mission was fulfilled. He was to point to. He was to give light until the Messiah came. And now that he's come, we no longer need the lamp. So that's witness number one. John the Baptist. Jesus says, John the Baptist testifies about me. And you know this. Witness number two is the works that Jesus does. Witness number two is the works he does. He says, but the testimony I have is greater than that of John. So John's a good witness. He's a believable witness. You should listen to him. But I have something even better. So he calls to the stand the works that he's done. He says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, they bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And so the works that he's doing, John is going to record seven of them in succession. In chapter 2, the turning of water into wine is a sign that Jesus is divine. Is that right? John chapter 2, a little bit later, the cleansing of the temple shows that Jesus has authority over the worship of the temple. He is the God of the temple. In John chapter 4, we have the healing of the noble man's son at a distance. 20 miles away, he heals this man's son. That was a sign that Jesus is Lord of time and space and disease. We see in John chapter 5, the healing of a lame man, which is the context of this passage. We have the feeding of the multitude in John chapter 6. Jesus is the bread of life. We have the healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. We have the raising of Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. These signs get greater and greater and greater and require more and more power and are more and more verification that Jesus is the son of God. And Jesus is just saying, just look at what I do. That gives testimony that I have the authority of the father. In Acts chapter 2, after Jesus is ascended into heaven, his disciples, John or, uh, uh, Peter, Peter actually gives the very first Christian sermon after Pentecost. And listen to how he starts in Acts chapter 2, verse 22. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. So he starts his sermon by saying Jesus proved he was God by the things that he did. That God through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. You know this. So testimony number two is the works. Witness number two is the works that Jesus did. John 20, 31, which is the purpose statement of the whole gospel. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. He's like, I just listed seven. There's a whole lot more. He said but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So witness number one, John the Baptist. Witness number two, the works that Jesus is doing. Witness number three is the Father Himself. God the Father Himself. Witness number three, verse 37. The Father who sent me has Himself bore witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one he has sent. So the Father is actually behind all other all the other four witnesses. He's actually the work of God the Father. To bring glory to the Son. To unveil the saving plan through Jesus. So he gives indirect witness through the works Jesus does. That's what he says. Is that the works come from the Father. And prove that the Father is witnessing through my works. But there's also direct word, witness through the scriptures. Which we're going to come back to in a second. But also Matthew 3 records Jesus at his baptism. The God the Father actually the Spirit comes down like a dove and descends on Jesus. So you have the Spirit, the Son, and then you have the Father, you have the Trinity, all saying the same thing at once. Jesus being baptized, coming out of the water, the Spirit lands on him like a dove, and heaven opens up, and God Himself declares audible words This is my beloved Son, in whom I'm well pleased. The Father Himself gives testimony. John 14, 8 through 9, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it'll be enough for us. And Jesus said to them, have I been with you so long yet you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the father. So that's witness number three is that the father himself so identifies with the son and actually audibly declares at his baptism, This is my son. This is my divine son trust in him and actually at the transfiguration he does the same thing this is my son listen to him and so the father himself gives witness to Jesus's divinity witness number four is the scriptures look at the second half of verse 38 he says you do not have his word abiding in you for you do not believe the one that he has sent you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life but it is that they bear witness about me Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You're not following the directives of scripture. Now at this point, the New Testament hasn't been written. So we're talking about the Old Testament. Jesus is saying the whole Old Testament is about me. It is full of arrows and pointers and symbols and signs and prophecies that point to me. And if you really believe and understand the scriptures, you would recognize me. But the reality is, is you think that just knowing your Bible... Gives eternal life. There was actually a rabbi named Hillel, who was a very famous rabbi at the time, and here's what he said He affirmed that the more study of the law, the more life you have. And that if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. So, the more scripture memory you have, the more saved you are. And Jesus is calling them out, going, That's not true. You are missing the whole point of the Old Testament. It's not about a bunch of words on a paper. It's about a person. It's about Jesus himself who came. Don Carson says that the Old Testament points to Jesus by predictive prophecy and by type, by revelatory event and anticipatory statute. He uses big words. What we call the Old Testament is understood to point to Christ, his ministry, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. He's like, it's so obvious. It's so obvious in your Old Testament that I am the Messiah. And you're more interested in the... The words on the page than you are what they point to. It's a bit like promising your kids you're going to go to Disneyland and hanging out at the sign. Getting out on the road, the sign says, "Hey, entrance to Disneyland right there." And you're like, "Kids, we made it!" And you just hang out at the sign. You know, he's like, "You're meant to use the sign to point to what the sign is indicating, right? Go and enjoy the real thing, which is Jesus." So this is not to put down our Bibles in any way. It's just that our desire, our Bibles are, are intended to bring us to God. So there's two themes that run through the Old Testament. Well, there's many, but here's two primary ones. In the Old Testament, mankind, theme number one, mankind is hopefully, hopefully, hopelessly sorry, man is hopelessly rebellious and unable to save himself. That's why your Old Testament is so long, is because it takes a long time for us to get that through our thick heads. That we cannot be saved by our works. That we cannot be saved by religion. Even if God gave us every advantage, like the Promised Land, and even if he put bread on the ground for us, and even if he destroyed those nasty Philistines, like if he did everything to kind of give us a privileged position in order to reach out and grab him, we would still fall short. Every hero in the Old Testament is a failure. Every king, every prophet, every single one of them falls short. Man is hopelessly rebellious and unable to save themselves. And the reason your whole Old Testament is because you you believe that, you actually believe that you have something good in you that God is is that somehow you can reach out, that you can that you can accomplish your own salvation. And the Old Testament is just trying to bear you in your need, so that when Jesus comes, he's so sweet. So that's theme number one: mankind is hopelessly rebellious and unable to save themselves. Theme number two is that God has sent a perfect Savior, the seed of the woman, the Lion of Judah. The son of man, the suffering servant, the Passover lamb, the Messiah. And we'll come back to that again. I love what the uh, Jesus Storybook Bible puts it this way. This is a cool little Bible here. And uh, I love to give this out because I actually think parents need to hear this. <laughs> That's a sneaky way to uh, disciple parents is by give them stuff for their kids. And then when they read it with their kids, they're like, oh, I didn't know that. So listen to this. God wrote, I love you. He wrote it in the sky and on the earth and under the, under the sea. He wrote this message everywhere because God created everything in his world to reflect him like a mirror, to show us that he what he is like, to help us know him and to make our hearts sing. The way a kitten chases her tail, the way red poppies grow wild, the way a dolphin swims, and God put into words too and wrote it in a Bible in a book called the Bible. Now, some people think the Bible is a book of rules, telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best. But the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what he has done. Other people think the Bible is full of heroes, showing you people you should copy. The Bible does have some heroes in it, but as you'll soon find out, most of the people in the Bible aren't heroes They make some big mistakes, sometimes on purpose. They get afraid and they run away, and sometimes they are downright mean. No, the Bible isn't a book of rules or a book of heroes. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a faraway country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story, the story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell the story, and at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all the other pieces fit together, And suddenly you have a beautiful picture. And it goes on from there. It's a beautiful, beautiful story of how all of scripture points to Jesus. And so that's witness number four. Witness number five is Moses. If there's anyone that the Jewish leaders love, it's Moses. Verse 45. Do not think I will accuse you to the father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me, but if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So they're so zealous about the Sabbath because that's part of the law that's, that Moses gave. So they're coming to Jesus going, "We, you think you're greater than Moses? And Jesus is essentially saying, Moses is my servant. And he pointed to me. You see, they looked to Moses as a deliverer, as a mediator between them and God at Mount Sinai. Remember, God was going to destroy them for the rebellion. And he said, don't destroy them, God. And God listened to Moses. So he was a mediator. He provided for them. He was the lawgiver. Moses was the shepherd, the leader, the savior of God's people, the the advocate and the intercessor through his writings. There's no one greater than Moses to the Jewish people. And Jesus is saying, Mo- I won't have to accuse you. Moses will accuse you. You're so dedicated to Moses. And when it comes to the end... What you've spent your whole life studying is going to testify against you. Francis Schaeffer uh, was a great Christian philosopher, and he once said, If you know, we don't even necessarily need God's law to know that we're guilty before God. We don't necessarily even need our Bible. He's like, just take a recorder and if you just put it around someone's neck and it just recorded everything they ever said in their life, and you just took that and went, do they even live up to their own standard? The standard they expect of others, the way they portray themselves, would their life actually match up with even what they say? We would all be guilty. We would all be guilty by our own standards of morality, let alone God's. And that's what he's saying is that you've got Moses' law written around your neck. You've got it posted to the doors of your house. You love Moses, but I'm just telling you, he testifies to me. And that's going to be judgment on your own heads because you should be listening to Moses. Deuteronomy 18 Verses fifteen through twenty-two. Here's what Moses actually said. So we're calling Moses to the stand, and here's what Moses would say: fifteen hundred years before Jesus. Here's what Moses said in Deuteronomy eighteen, verses fifteen through twenty-two. Just listen to this. He says, "The Lord your God will raise up a for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is him you shall listen, just as you desired." of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God and let and see this great fire any more lest I die the Lord said to me they are right in that they have spoken verse 18 I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him and whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name I myself were required of them, but the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded to speak or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. And if you say in your heart, how may we know the word that the Lord has spoken when the prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the word does not come to pass or come true, that is a word that the Lord has not spoken and the prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You need, to, you need not be afraid of him. So in a sense, there will be a prophet like Moses who will be the deliverer, who will be the mediator, who will be the provider, who will be the lawgiver, who will be the shepherd and the leader and the advocate and the intercessor times 10, times 100. Moses testified about this. In Exodus 33 and 34, Moses comes before God and says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory. It will incinerate you. So, what I'll do is, I will put you in the crevice of this rock, and I will let my shadow pass by. That's all of my glory that you can handle. So, Moses desired to see the glory of God, and he was unable to see it. But in John 1, verses 14 through 18, it says, We have seen his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. We have something greater than Moses, we have something greater than Moses experienced. We have Jesus himself who shows us the glory of the Father. So that's witness number five, Moses. Okay, very quickly, the real problem is willful unbelief. So Jesus, right in the middle of his calling of these witnesses to say, hey, here's credible witnesses that I am the Son of God. You should believe in me. The real problem is willful unbelief. Look in verse 38. The real problem is that you are spiritually empty. So the is not with the witnesses. The problem's not with Jesus. The problem's not with the law. The problem is with the hearts of those who are. Uh, accusing him. It says the problem is you're spiritually empty. The problem is that you do not believe. The problem is that you misunderstand Scripture verse 39. The, ver- the problem is, is that you refuse to come to me verse 40. The problem is that you do not love God verse 42. The problem is that you do not receive me verse 43 The problem is that you receive anybody but me. Verse 44. And the problem is that you do not listen to Moses. Verses 45 through 47. He's like, the problem isn't with the scriptures. The problem isn't with the law. The problem isn't with me or the works that I do. The problem is not that I work on the Sabbath or claim to be God. The promise is that you are spiritually dead. You have willfully looked at the evidences and decided that you do not believe. The first four words of those statements show why there's a conflict here. The problem is you, That's what he's saying. You have an agenda. You are trying to protect yourselves. You're trying to justify yourself. And I'm offensive if you wanna try to save yourself. Because I'm saying that you can't save yourself. And that is offensive, to tell people that they're bound for hell and God's wrath if they don't repent and turn to Jesus? How arrogant is that? Unless it's true. And then it's the sweetest news in the world. He right? says the problem is not me. The problem is you. Which then brings us to Jesus in all of scripture. So I want to just go back for just a moment here. And just dwell for another few minutes. On verse 39. He says you search the scriptures. Because you think in them you have eternal life. It is that they bear witness about me. This is huge. So. I grew up going to church, I grew up Christian school, godly home, all this stuff, and I don't know that this clicked for me, and I don't want to blame any of that, all of that's great, but it didn't click for me until I was in Old Testament Bible class as a freshman in college, and all of a sudden I realized that all of these random stories, David and Goliath, Moses, Abraham, Daniel... Like they were kind of in my mind, like stories. I didn't really know what order they went in, and they kind of taught us more or "face your giants" or whatever, or you know, um, or knowing the ark, that's just kind of a big moving zoo, or what? It's just like they were all kind of disconnected and moralistic and that kind of stuff. Which is, it was in that in that space where I went, like, oh man, the whole Bible is rigged to point to Jesus. All of human history is rigged to bring glory to the Son. And I realized that the Bible was telling one big story, and it blew my mind. And my spiritual life just exploded because all of a sudden the gospel wasn't just like you uh, had trust in Jesus and then move on to being a good person, as if the gospel is like the starting point and then and then you move on. But that Jesus is actually at the center of everything. That's why Paul says, "I decided to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified," because that's all there is to preach. In Luke twenty-four, like if I went back in time. I went back in time to any moment in human history and could be there. I would go to Luke 24. This is the day that Jesus rose from the dead, and there's this buzz going around among his followers that Jesus has risen from the dead, and not many people have seen him yet. And there's these two people that are walking to Emmaus, which is a few miles away from Jerusalem, and they're talking about these things. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up and asks them, what are you talking about? And they don't recognize him at first. And so they're like have you been living under a rock like this weekend has been crazy our messiah was killed and the sun went black and you know people came out of the graves and you know and now there's a few ladies that are a part of our party that said they went to the tomb and he's not there and and so he's like this has just been where have you been that you haven't seen you haven't heard about the crucifixion and all that's happened And so Jesus keeps having this conversation, kind of plays along with them. They don't quite recognize him, and he's asking them questions. And then Jesus gets to a point in Luke 24, 25, where he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? It's like, that should have been obvious to you that this is how salvation would work. Verse 27, this is it. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets... He interpreted in them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. I would love to be part of that eight mile walk where Jesus, in his glorified state, walks you through the Old Testament, giving you the greatest sermon in the world about how it all is for his glory. That would be that would be the greatest hike ever. And I would love to have been there to have the resurrected Jesus unfold all of the scriptures and every nook and cranny and how it was all about him. And I can imagine I'm I'm stealing this right here from J.D. Greer because he did. uh, I kind of modified what he did. So this isn't original with me, but I can just imagine that that conversation went something like this. In Genesis, Jesus is the word of God creating the heavens and the earth. In Exodus, Jesus is the Passover lamb whose blood was sprinkled on the doorposts of your heart so that you could escape the bonds of slavery. In Leviticus, Jesus is the tabernacle, the holy place where you met with God. In Numbers, Jesus is your provider in the desert, giving water and manna. In Deuteronomy, Jesus is the prophet coming who is greater than Moses. In Joshua, Jesus is the conquering warrior, leading you into the promised land. In Judges, Jesus is the broken savior, rising up to rescue you. In Ruth, Jesus is your kinsman redeemer. In 1st and 2nd Samuel, Jesus is the pure-hearted shepherd king who rushes out to face your giants all by himself. In 1st and 2nd Kings, Jesus is the righteous ruler. In 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Jesus is the restorer of the kingdom. In Ezra, Jesus is the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, Jesus is the rebuilder of the walls. In Esther, Jesus is your advocate, risking his life to save and restore yours. In Job, Jesus is your living redeemer. In the Psalms, Jesus is the one who hears your cries. In Proverbs, Jesus is wisdom personified. In Ecclesiastes, Jesus is the meaning of life that helps you escape meaninglessness. In the Song of Solomon, Jesus is your lover and your bridegroom. In Isaiah, Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. He is wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. In Jeremiah, Jesus is the spirit that writes God's laws on your heart. In Lamentations, Jesus is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, Jesus is the river of life bringing healing to the nations. In Daniel, Jesus is the fourth man in the fire. In Hosea, Jesus is the ever faithful husband pursuing an unfaithful bride. In Joel, Jesus is the restorer of all that the locusts have eaten. In Amos, Jesus is our burden bearer. In Obadiah, Jesus is the judge of all the earth. In Jonah, Jesus is the prophet cast out in the storm, storm so that you could be brought in. In Micah, Jesus is the everlasting ruler born to us in Bethlehem. In Nahum, Jesus is the avenger of God's elect. In Habakkuk, Jesus is your reason to rejoice even when our fields are empty. In Zephaniah, Jesus is the great reformer. In Haggai, Jesus is the cleansing fountain. In Zechariah, Jesus is the pierced sun from every eye on earth will one day behold. And in Malachi, Jesus is the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings would be the greatest sermon ever. But the reality is, is that our Bible doesn't stop there. And we have a New Testament. Jesus did come. And in Matthew, he's the king of the Jews. In Mark, he's the son of God. In Luke, he's the savior born to us in the city of David, Christ the Lord. In John, he's the word made flesh dwelling among us. In Acts, he's the risen Lord. Proclaiming salvation to the nations In Romans he is the just and justifier Of all who would trust in him In 1st and 2nd Corinthians the Spirit He is the spirit at work in the churches In Galatians he is the righteousness Imputed to us by faith In Ephesians he is our righteous armor In Philippians he is the God Who meets our every need In Colossians he is the firstborn Of all creation In 1st and 2nd the, Thessalonians He is descending from heaven with a shout Coming to meet us together in the clouds In 1st and 2nd Timothy, he is the one mediator between God and man. In Titus, he is the faithful pastor. In Philemon, he is our redeemer, restoring us to his service. In Hebrews, he is our great high priest. In 1st and 2nd Peter, he is our living cornerstone. In 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he is our advocate, pleading his righteousness in our place. In Jude, he's God our Savior, the one who keeps us from stumbling and presents us blameless in his presence with great joy. And in Revelation, he is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the Lamb slain before the foundation of the world, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's always, always been about him and always ever will be. And so we preach Christ. He's the center of it all. He's the center of your Bible. He's the center of your life. He's the center of human history. And we bowed to him. So let me just conclude. Do you read your Bible like that? Looking for Jesus? Don't come to the Bible just looking for life hacks. Or a personal self-improvement plan. Come there to see and savor Jesus. Believe what the Bible says about Jesus. Believe these witnesses. Believe the testimony of scripture. And make Jesus the joyful center of your life. I call you today. To bow your knee before Jesus, before King Jesus. To repent of your sins and trust that he is the son of God. That he lived a perfect sinless life. That he died a death to make atonement for your sins. That he rose again and he's seated on high. And that all who trust in him will be united to him forever. This is huge. The gospel is not the diving board into something else. The gospel is the pool that we dive in. Jesus is everything. He's everything. Let's bow. God, we thank you for this glorious truth that we come to the scriptures thinking that in them we have eternal life, but they testify to you. So, God, I, I pray that we would hear the witness, these five witnesses, and that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. And God, maybe we've heard this a thousand times in our life. God, I pray that it would be as fresh and deep as it ever has been right now, that we would glory in your name and that all other things in our life would come underneath this truth that you are the savior of the world, you are the king of the universe, you are the center of everything. God, I pray that we would read our Bibles looking for you, for promises about you, for prophecies fulfilled about you, for failures of other people that make us long for you. Lord, I pray that we would submit ourselves entirely to you. I pray if there's anyone in here today who's not repented of their sin, And delighted in Jesus Christ, come to Him for for salvation. That today would be the day, today would be the day that they cross over from death to life and come into a relationship with this glorious Savior. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeeming Grace Church podcast. For more information about our church, go to rgcrc.org.